welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going to continue in the Word of God this morning, as is our custom, moving verse by verse through the book of Colossians. And we come to a section that talks about uh, slaves and masters in the ancient world, but most commentators and this commentator believe that the applications of all this fall into our workaday world, the marketplace that you and I live in today. So there's a lot here about our working lives So let's hear the word of God together and explore it in the time we have. Paul wrote to this church, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's heart-reaching word. May he speak to us in power today, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being uh, patient to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. Well, Paul is finishing a theme here in in the epistle to the Colossians. He started it, as you know, very well by now, in chapter 3, verse 1 where he talked about the fact that Christ has come to dwell within us. He's given us new spiritual life, new spiritual power. And out of that new life should come new living. Who Jesus is in you and me should affect everything we do in our outer world. And so he's he's gone through some heavy application to his people. And he's talked about the fact that there's one governing principle for us. It's verse 17, where he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's your new life call. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ. We saw doing it in Jesus' name means doing it as though he were here and you were doing it representing him. We all kind of have a lifelong power of attorney that Jesus gave us over our life and world to live it like he would have lived it. Now, there's many spheres that Paul says this happens in, and he's gone through a few of them. He went through marriage in verses 18 and 19, husbands and wives and our roles in marriage. Then he went through the whole family circle with talking about children and parents in verses 20 and 21. Now he goes into the working world that we live in. As I said, yeah, this talks about slaves and masters, but uh, most commentators believe that this applies today in terms of the world of commerce and making a living. In, in Paul's world, commerce largely happened in, in the home and through privately owned enterprises, and the vast majority of people in the Roman Empire were slaves. There were 60 million of them at the time that Paul wrote, and that was six out of every 10 Romans. So most of the population operated and lived and died as slaves. We'll talk more about their life in a minute. So there was a a smaller upper class that owned all the enterprises and all all the wealth, and slaves were born into service to power those enterprises, and most of that happened in the Roman home. So there was an upper class and a working class, a slave class, and there was virtually no middle class. So it was a very different kind of context from us. But today, we can take the same principles of work 
and of diligence and of submission to authority and of doing things to, for excellence and the meaning that's in it all. And we can apply that to our working lives. And so that's how I'm going to bring this passage in terms of applying it to us. Now, that's the biggest part of our life uh, in the marketplace, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, uh, a whole year of just going to church on a Sunday for a couple hours barely represents a little over a couple weeks of time that you and I put into the workplace. So most of our waking hours with a commute tacked on to an eight or a nine hour day, they're spent working for somebody. It's the biggest part of our life, but it's also developed the biggest question mark around it, especially because of what's happened in the last couple years. There's a commentator on this, Lara Renee, and she uh, wrote in a in an analysis of what's happened to Christians in work recently because of the experience that we've all gone through of the COVID impact on our workplaces. She wrote this. This time last year, so that would have been uh, uh, January of 2021, as many of us began cautiously emerging from a year-long quarantine, one reality rose to the surface. Our old way of working doesn't work for us anymore. After months and months of five-step commutes down our hallways instead of an hour on the freeway and conference calls in our pajama pants, <laughs> some of you remember that, we got those return-to-office emails and they hit our inboxes like a COVID-19 nasal swab. They just... <laughs> so a lot of us had to go back to work-work, is what she say. When that happened, the American workforce started to sustain record-breaking turnover rates or resignation rates. You remember this? And uh, it's been called the great resignation. Maybe you're familiar with the term. All kinds of people, when they were forced to kind of go back to work, work, work the way it was before they had this, this informal change of COVID, began to face how they felt about their work and what their work was doing to them, what it was taking from them. And many began to resign. They didn't go back. Or they decided to go and explore a totally different job. In fact, according to the U.S. Labor Department, she writes more than 4.5 million people quit their jobs in November uh, alone of 2021. And that's continued. We've seen these large surges in the great resignation of people moving to different jobs, opting out to think a while, or trying to start their own enterprise. It's, it's kind, of, kind of a whole uh, mix of things. Many, decide, many cited flexibility as a primary motivator for choosing to leave a role. They, they'd come to enjoy the flexibility the COVID prohibitions gave them, especially in cities known for their lengthy commutes and relentlessly fast-paced industries. A new era of remote and hybrid work has paved the way for people to suddenly discover greater work-life balance. Clearly, that's a benefit that many were not quite ready to part with, and so they decided to explore something that gave them more of that. What happened, she says, is that people discovered when they had some time to look at their working life just how bleak some of our working environments are. They discovered a picture in which burnout and overwork are celebrated by their companies, ceaseless productivity was expected, and the idea that you've arrived is always just still right around another corner. They discovered that work had the place of an idol, that they'd had an unknowing worship of work. And as one person wrote, I discovered that my desk was never meant to be an altar. So that's what happened, and, and many of us have gone through that. And so it created a question. The question among so many in the great resignation is, I've taken a second look at work, how I work, what, do, what work does to me, what I've sacrificed for it, and... At this point in my life, I'm asking, how can my work have value? That's really what's behind all of it. How can my work have value? And now more than ever, people are asking that question. And now you might say, well, I wasn't in a job where I could commute. I, in fact, I, I had to show up in a workplace where there were all kinds of new rules and problems and barriers and restrictions. And I, I agree. I might add that from, for those of us who couldn't work from home, COVID meant that you still went to work, but your work just got magnitudes harder, right? All kinds of different problems. But that would lead you to ask the same question. 
Where is the value in what I have to do and how I have to do it now? How can my work have value? Now, I, I look back over my life and, and um, I've explored and dealt with this question not only in ministry, where I kind of went through my own crises about does pastoring have value, but uh, through burnout, as you know, and, and other things, I left the ministry for quite a long period of time, a number of years, and, and I went out into the marketplace and, and I was sitting where you are, attending churches and I lived out and worked in many different roles, sales rep, sales manager, small for, for small businesses and also for large corporate uh, companies publicly held and worked in a lot of different uh, positions in the sales world. And then I got into broadcast radio and was a program director for a radio station. And then I got involved as a radio talk show host. And even after that, uh, built a consulting uh, practice for my advertising clients and, and, uh, I understand what it's like to, to pull a dollar out of the dirt. And all through those years as I was sitting in different places and hearing the word instead of preaching it, I can't remember a message on work. <laughs> can't remember a sermon on the workplace or the value of work. And, uh, well, Paul gives us one. So uh, this is making up for some lost time in my life, too. I've learned a lot through studying it. But I'm going to preach it around that question. So it's a, it's a message kind of already built around its application. How can the believer's work have value? Paul addresses that here, and he puts a great principle, uh, a set of principles out. And I just want to walk through these, and, and as I preach, help you know that your work can have value when, when you understand some things, when you view it a certain way. So we're going to go through several principles. You ready? Some of you guys are so tired from work, you're really not ready at all, okay? This is not just another one of those meetings. This is God bringing his word to us. So here's the first dimension. I'm going to walk through the text. The first two are really from the whole biblical context about work. How can your work have value for you as a Christian? Number one, your work can have value when you view it as a true privilege, your work can have value no matter what you do. Lowest part of a company, owner of the company, or anywhere in between. It can have value when you view it as a true privilege. And this is really important. It's a great uh, possession for the believer. Because the Bible tells us about the value of work. And, and uh, really, the, what the Bible teaches us is that work is a good thing that's fallen on hard times. And uh, it was a good thing created by God in the very, very beginning. And he called it good. He gave it to us as a good thing. But the fall broke it, and yet God's on the way to restoring it. So this is really, the first point is out of the whole context of Scripture. And I, I want to give you a kind of a theology of work. I want to take you through a quick tour of what the Bible says about labor and about working in the world um, and barring some of, some of this, uh, how this is put together from a Christian writer named Luke Bobo, who, who talked about uh, the story of work in the Bible in four different acts. So it's kind of how it all played out. Act one would have been creation where God introduced work to us. And, and uh, in, acts, in act one, when, when creation occurred, God, of course, is creator. And how does God show up in that moment? He doesn't introduce himself to us as our redeemer or our warrior or our refuge or our savior just in the beginning. He introduces himself to us as a worker. He writes, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. This is Genesis 2, 1 to 3. On the, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his labor in the King James work in our modern versions. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So how did God introduce himself or how is he acting in the very first moment of revelation? He is God at work. God, the creator of the entire system. Three times in Genesis 2, work describes who God is and what he was doing. And then it jumps into the further dimensions of, of all of all that he was doing. But 
He created mankind in his image. That was the capstone of his work. So there were gradients of this good thing. Now, it's interesting to remember that we were created in God's image to reflect his moral being and the ability to make moral choices. But also, you ever think about this? Part of being created in God's image was God appeared as and worked in the universe as a worker. And part of image bearing is imitating God, isn't it? And so I think another dimension, and he points it out in the article, is, is, is one of the ways we bear God's image and reflect God's glory is God worked, God created, God labored, and so would we. And in fact, you find the Genesis story laying that out because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, when God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the perfect garden and he said, this is yours to labor in. Remember that? And in verses 26 to 28 of Genesis 1, he says that you are to flourish, you are to have dominion over all this. Even in a perfect world, they were to exert labor and force, they were to create, they were to govern. This world was their world to labor in for the glory of God. And in that way, they reflected the glory of God. So Act one in all of this is the fact that God introduced himself as a laboring God, and in the image of God, we were assigned to be laboring people. And the whole point about this first idea is, is that work was originally good. I know some of you guys are saying that's completely impossible. You understand what I'm still trying to recover him from? It's Sunday morning, and I'm barely here because of how I got pounded. No, it was good. Well, that gets to act two where he talks about the fall of man. You might call this one the day when workplace drama showed up. <laughs> Everything was perfect. They were perfectly designed in a perfect world with a perfect assignment. Their work never had any problems. Everything they touched worked. Everything they did uh, came to pass. Everything they planted grew. Everything they wanted to see happen at the, at the work of their hands happened. It was a completely satisfying workplace environment. And yet, a new worker entered the office that day, the evil one, Satan himself, who came to destroy and disrupt this beautiful design of God. And he did. He deceived Adam and Eve, and he deceived Eve, and and they both sinned. And, and in the midst of that, judgment came, didn't it? God judged them. He began to judge sin. He promised he would send a redeemer. But there was judgment, and it fell on everything. The perfect environment was shattered. Now, it's interesting, in Genesis 3, part of that judgment fell on work. It fell on this this previously blessed activity. Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Remember this? Through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you will return. That's the curse laid upon the earth and upon work and upon everything we would now do that was designed perfectly and blissfully. Now there's hardship with it. So because of this, ever since then, every workplace and every effort of human life is going to be riddled with some pain. Human efforts in the workplace will yield good results, but through a lot of labor and difficulty, and sometimes they won't yield good results at all. Workplaces and work, it's no longer going to be easy. It's going to have toil and sweat and difficulty. So Act 2 says work came under judgment. But then he goes on and talks about Act 3, and that's when the Redeemer arrives. And uh, when Christ arrived, uh, not only did he come to bring the great redemption of the cross, but he came to fully identify with us as man, didn't he? That's what Hebrews says. He was tempted in all ways like as we are, including perhaps with the temptation not to want to go to work on a Monday morning. Yeah, without sin. He was the perfect one, but he came laboring. Think about it. He grew up at the elbow of a humble carpenter in Nazareth. 
He learned how to plane a board and set a line. He knew what it was like to have slivers run up his thumb, and he did it. For some 30 years, he grew up as an apprentice in Joseph's carpentry shop, and then he opened his own to support his own mother. And he labored, carving wood, building, maybe raising houses, whatever it was. Jesus went home with sawdust and mortar on his hands, on his clothes, and in his hair. Can you imagine everything that Jesus did? You know, a coffee table made by Jesus of Nazareth? Wouldn't it have been perfect? Think about it. Perfect son of God. Perfect. Perfectly chosen wood. Microscopically perfect curves. Excellently joined corners, everything. He's perfect. But he still labored in that perfection because he was human like we are. I just love my Lord. But he, he came into and, and gave dignity to work is the point. He lived and worked, and his work was enabled by the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Bible here is going to teach that our work can be enabled by the Holy Spirit. He valued that everyday work. And so, in a sense, there's a way in which he redeemed it by his example. And so, this chapter really talks about how, for the believer, we can redeem work. We can work as though God is with us, as Christ worked, as the Holy Spirit was with him. And we're going to find out in these verses how the Christian has the special ability to bring supernatural value to whatever he or she does, like he did. Finally, the author points out Act 4. There's a coming restoration of work. Remember, it was created in Act 1 as a good thing. In Act 2, it was broken by sin, and it was cursed because of the justice of God. And now it's, it's, it's difficult, and, and it, uh, it's burdensome. It's imperfect. The Lord Jesus, though, still walked in it and redeemed it by his own example, and believers representing him under the Holy Spirit can redeem it now. And one day when Christ comes back, it'll be redeemed completely. Did you know that you're still going to be working in the eternal future? Absolutely. The Bible says when the earth is partially renewed and restored and the the millennium rolls on for a thousand years, uh, as one author has put it, the curse will be reversed. And we'll have roles to play. We will serve him, the Bible says. We will rule over things, which is an, an, an aspect of work. Oh, those years will be glorious on this earth. And then when it's fully remade and we have a brand new heavens and earth and we step into the rolling experience of eternity, we will reign with him without stop. It's going to be awesome. And part of that is laboring for him and serving him. We'll serve him in his presence and we'll serve him in that brand new world. And work will be just the way God designed it once again. And so... um, Work is a true privilege. God designed it that way. Satan broke it in the meantime, but we can redeem it as Christians when we live in it here and now, just like Jesus redeemed it, and one day it'll be restored altogether. So don't forget this. Work has value when you view it as a true privilege. Thanks for letting me take the extended time on that. It's kind of a a theology of work from the Bible. Second, it's also just from the Bible at large. The second way your work can have value is when you understand it as a powerful witness. Uh, it's, it's interesting in Scripture that wherever you are as a believer, you are not simply there to fulfill that job description. You are there with a second role, and that is to redeem your work, to show you're working for Jesus, and as you do, you reveal Jesus to the watching world in your workplace. This is so prevalent in Scripture. I'm going to show you three passages. I'm just going to read them with no comment. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. We'll just stop there. Let that Scripture sink in. We are a powerful witness 
wherever we work, or we are a broken witness wherever we work. Scripture repeats this in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and, and 10. In Titus 2, 9 and 10, he says, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Look at this. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What a powerful impact. Your silent role of working for him and, and, and obeying God in, in terms of relating to your employer adorns the doctrine of God. It makes it look attractive. You adorn some, someone, they adorn themselves, they want to become more attractive to a watching world. And when you live that out and you honor Christ and you follow scripture and honor your employer and all the ways that the Bible says, you are adorning your life in such a way that as their hearts are touched by the Holy Spirit, they will be attracted to the God you say you serve. Wow. And finally, 1 Peter 2. 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He's talking about sorrows in your working world. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, he's talking to slaves, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, this is, for it is to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I'll just let the scriptures have their own witness. So work is a true privilege. We get to ordain it, and uh, pardon me, redeem it like Jesus did in a way, and it's a powerful witness if, if we live it out for him. Here's the third. Now we'll get into the text, and there are basically uh, four more here real quickly. Go to your Bibles now to Colossians 3. You get the third principle. Your work can have value when you commit to true excellence. This is verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Isn't it interesting that the human principle of goofing off until the boss walks in is ageless? I know I did it on the sales floor. Pull the old internet, and then the boss walks in, and suddenly I'm making my calls. I'm just like you. There's principles here. I'm going back, oh, for crying out loud, Lord, I didn't honor you very well at all out there. Committing to excellence. What, what, what is this all about? He's talking about obeying and doing your work in every dimension. Look, in everything, every aspect of your job. That talks about excellence. It talks about doing it not, not just to get by, not just to make the basic numbers on, that you have to report or, or make the right number of calls or fill out the right forms and look like you're working. Just do the minimum. He talks about doing it passionately from your heart, verse 23. It's a commitment to excellence. And there seem to be three ways that this excellence is talked about here. First of all, he talks about working completely. He says, in everything... Every aspect of your job, you ought to perform with all you've got because you're doing it for him. So we don't live a double life in, on the job. We don't mail some of it in. And you don't do it as somebody who's just doing it when you have to do it to look like you're doing your job or keep your job or whatever. You do it when you're not being looked at. You do it when nobody notices. You do it because that's who you are in Christ. Wow. Verse 23 amplifies it, whatever you do. So there's nothing that is kind of at a lower priority. Now, I talked about bond servants here, and I, I told you I was going to tell you a little bit more about slaves in, in that time. And um, it, it was, uh, like I said, 60 million, six out of every 10. So most of the people on the street uh, were slaves. Some of them were very well educated. Uh, they, they basically carried out every dimension of labor in Roman society because those who owned all the businesses in Roman culture, if you owned an entity or you were a, a, a member of government or whatever, 
it was actually beneath your honor to do any work. So you had this elite class that were basically enjoying life on the wealth that came from the labor of the working class, no middle class. And some of these slaves were very well educated. They had great responsibilities in people's homes. They, they taught and educated the children. They were doctors. They were, they were medical people in the homes. They were uh, legal experts. Just about every profession you can touch on in our current society done by a person who does it at will and because they trained to do it and want to do it. In Roman society, they were trained to do it, but they didn't have to have a choice to do it. They were born into that, and they would die in that. They had absolutely no rights. Dr. Barclay, whom I've used a lot in this series, who researches Greek culture, says in the Greek culture, the doulos, the slave, was usually referred to a life of involuntary permanent service. In many of the cities of Asia Minor, slaves outnumbered everyone else. Doctors, teachers, secretaries, legal experts, all the way up to the Roman emperors had slaves. And they had no rights. Under Roman law, the slave was a thing in the eyes of the law. There was no such thing as a code of working conditions. When a slave aged out to where he couldn't work anymore, they basically just changed the locks on the door, and he was left to wander the streets and die. Slave did not have the right to marry unless it was given by special permission. And if he and his spouse had a child, the child did not belong to them. The child belonged to the master at the top of the food chain. All the rights belong to the master and all the duties to the slave. You say, yeah, it does sound a lot like my workplace. <laughs> oh, really? Well, it's interesting when you read this because he's saying, work your heart out. But think about what he's saying to these people. They weren't getting paid anything. They were just given room and board and whatever the master decided so you could work your heart out as a slave, and what, what, what did you get for it? Nothing extra. Didn't get paid more, didn't get a bonus, no retirement plan with a special bump. You didn't get anything. So he's speaking to these Christians. No wonder the temptation of slaves who were doing this for no income. They had no hope of getting any better treatment. They were doing this because they had to, not because they wanted to. Of course they would not work hard. Of course they only worked when the master walked into the room because there was no motivation externally. Paul says for the believer, oh, there is a an eternal amount of motivation internally for you as a Christ follower because you're not doing this for the, the slave owner. You're doing this for the Lord. He assigned you here. This is for his glory. What a difference. And, you know, you know the temptation's still the same today. Maybe you're in a job. It's one you don't want, but it's one you got to have because you got to keep the lights on and and this is what's worked out for you, and you've been there for years, and you're kind of struggling with an attitude about it. And you're not working much more than the minimum because you just aren't motivated with what you're getting out of it. Well, a lot of people are that way. Uh, there was a couple surveys earlier this week. Um, average American worker goofs off seven hours per week on average. <laughs> I don't know what goof off said. It was They must have surveyed and said, Honestly, how many hours are you goofing off at work? So people said seven. So that ba means basically they're working a four-day four work week instead of a five. I can get that. Survey, same survey revealed one half of all American workers admit to uh, regularly calling in sick when they're not. And only one out of four really give their best effort at work. I mean, some people really do stop looking for work the day they get a job. I mean, when you think about it. You'll get that in a minute. It'll arrive. <laughs> so it's a temptation for all of us, temptation in every domain. But here he says, no, bond servants, you're to live into every aspect of your work because you're doing this for the Lord. Verse 23, you're doing it for the Lord and not for men. I don't know what you're facing in your work that makes you Feel that it's just not something you want to fully devote yourself to, but as long as you're there, you've got to devote yourself to it for him. They may give you unexpected things to do. New rules of them arrive that are unpleasant. The pay scale may not be moving, and it may be unfair to you, or whatever you want to put into that blank. 
Do something to improve your state. We're in a society where you can do that, but as long as you're there, be there, and be there 100% for him. He says, you do this for the Lord, verse 23, not for men. So excellence happens. Excellence happens when we work completely, number one. Number two, when we work intensely, this is uh, verse 23. He says, whatever you do in, in your role and work, work heartily. The word heartily was a Greek word which meant with your full soul. Give it all you got. Don't give them just all that they want. Give it all that you've got because you're doing this for the Lord. So completely, intensely, and excellence thirdly requires that you work sincerely. He says in verse uh, 22, do it with sincerity of heart, fearing and honoring the Lord. Sincerity of heart, Greek word that meant, it meant a, it meant a, a, a rope or a, that had nothing woven into it. It was just solid. And he's talking there about not having any mixed motives. You know, you can weave something into a rope that, that nobody can see that actually makes it weaker, but it gives the impression it's solid. And you can weave different motivations into why you're doing things. Yeah, I'm doing this because I need to look good, or I'll do it because I have to. Or only do it where it's close enough to get done. Whatever it is, you're, are you weaving some of that motivation in there? No, he says you're doing this for the Lord. You offer your heart. You offer your best. Completely, intensely, sincerely. Your work can have value when you commit to true excellence. Let's move quickly now to the last three. Number four, your work can have value when you remember who you really work for. I've already revealed this, but in verse 23, he says, whatever you do, work with your full heart, work from your soul as for the Lord and not for men. When I was out in the marketplace, I worked for some great managers and great bosses, and we had some great company leaders, and we had some rotten ones. I had some rotten ones. It's, it's, it's the complexion of our society in terms, of, in terms of who runs the working world, right? But Jesus here says that whatever you do, you can pour your heart into it because you're serving the Lord and you're not serving just that person, you know, completely, intensely, sincerely. Whatever it is, it's for the Lord. I mean, you're probably a direct report to somebody unless you own a company or you're an entrepreneur. Most of us in the working world, I was, you are, you're a direct report to somebody who manages your work, directs your work, delivers expectations, reviews, all that. Well, there's a divine direct report that you actually have wherever you work. He doesn't change. It's him. You know that. It doesn't matter whether you can really respect the people that work over you and are bosses over you, whether, you, whether doing, they're doing things right or wrong, whether, whether, whether you've got a better idea, whether whatever. There's a, they're an indirect agent of the one who really hired you, and that's God. That's what he's trying to say here. God has placed you, servants, into your role. Notice you're to do this with a sense of the presence of God. He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Look at the end of verse 22, fearing the Lord. Now that's interesting. God is the authority over your work life. Fearing there talks about holding him in reverence with an understanding of his authority. It's not fearing him that he's going to punish you because that punishment, of course, was resolved at the cross. But we're talking about a God who has assigned you where you are and who has expectations for how you work. And you, you need to be aware of his presence all the time. He's with you all the time, and he is the one whom you're really working for. And, and Christians from the past have have had that understanding. Um, a Latin phrase kind of describes it, coram deo. It meant living before the face of God or in the presence of God. It was the Latin translation of Psalm 56, 13, where the writer talks about, I live and I walk before God. And, and Christian teachers of the past have believed in this idea of coram deo, meaning that, that everything you do in your life, you're doing before the presence of God. 
Everything privately, everything interpersonally, everything publicly. God knows all things. He's present with you at all times. And so if you're conscious of the quorum Deo principle, God is with you at all times, and you're in his presence, and you're under his authority, and you want to live to his glory at all times, in every moment. And so Christians of the past have used this to remind them of who they really serve and who they're really going to report to and be accountable to. And so it it keeps you from compartmentalizing your Christian life. A lot of people say, I'm going to go to the house of the Lord today. And you're here in the house of the Lord. Well, there's probably a lot wrong with that statement. (laughs) But a lot of us compartmentalize our life saying, okay, I'm, 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 doing my Christian responsibility. I'm in church today. And when you're hitting it Monday morning and, and heading to the job site, where, where is that mentality? No, you're doing, you're doing your other thing. You're doing the thing you have to do. You're doing the thing that's going to take most of your energy and time throughout your life, but you didn't bring God along. No, he's there. Don't compartmentalize your life. It's so easy. I know I did it for years. It was hard for me to even see why God would be interested in some of the work that I did and some of the numbers I had to hit and products I had to sell and all of that. But no, he's interested because he gets glory in all things and I'm his glory bringer. I was his glory bringer in all those companies and all those roles. Coram Deo. And he's with me and he watches my work. And... I can ignore him and start living as though he's not there, but he always is, and he'll remind me. You're saying, Coram Deo. Here you are talking Latin. You know, I don't get it, Coram Deo in the present. Okay. When you're a teenager, and your mom told you to do something, and you did it until she left to go shopping, then you hit the couch, and you got the TV up going and whatever age you were, maybe some of, her, some of you are young enough to have gotten into a game box and all this stuff, and you're just going at it. And Coram Deo is the experience you had when your mother didn't use the garage door that day to where you could hear her. <laughs> For some reason, she slipped in the front door, and she stood behind you, and you heard, just what do you think you're doing? The look in my eyes, Coram Dale. <laughs> Knew what I needed to be doing, forgot that his presence was there. I think you get it. Well, that was my best attempt. Okay. <laughs> you basically ought to be able to put on your office door, your cube, your truck. I mean, could you put up a sign that says, Divine Service is here Monday through Friday, 9 to 5? Could you do that? Last two. Your work can have value when you know when your compensation really comes. Look at verse 24. Knowing, do all of this, live with excellence, live for him, be aware of his presence, know who you really work for. And when it's all said and done, he's talking to slaves now who got no wages, no paycheck, and certainly would have no inheritance. They had nothing to look forward to. They didn't get to any of the fruit of their labor from their earthly work. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. What an encouragement that would have been to people who were owned property. Didn't get any pay. There was no retirement. They put everything into that that enterprise and they were going to get nothing when it was all done. Paul says, you are going to have a payday someday. It's coming. Wow. You're going to have the inheritance when you step into the eternal place of being with me. He also says it's going to be your reward. I like to think that, you know, when we go, go and stand before the Lord and we're rewarded for our service, a lot of people look at that chapter in 2 Corinthians and they think, well, that's for ministry. I'll be rewarded for all the ministry I did. And, you know, I'm not, I don't have much of a chance to do ministry. My schedule's kind of crazy. I don't have a big spiritual gift or I'm a teacher or anything. I come and watch kids do their verses at Awana. I'm not going to get much of a reward. Oh, wait a minute. He's your master at all times. He will reward you for everything you did at all times in every dimension of your life, including the biggest dimension, your working life. 
And since every day you had an opportunity to serve the Lord, verse 23, on that day, he'll give you a reward for how you served him. It covers everything, my friend. Every moment you served God when you could have served yourself. Wow. I think this came as good news to these slaves because they weren't expecting anything. But Paul says you're going to get something beyond your wildest dreams. Far more than your earthly masters ever had. I mean, imagine it this way. Um, you, you're getting to the end of 30 years with the same company. You're one of those rare people. Had its ups and downs. It was kind of a so-so company, but you hung in there. and You're sitting down with your manager for the exit interview, and, and they uh, congratulate you on 30 years. You're not expecting anything. In a way, you're kind of glad it's over. You got Social Security. You got a small amount of funds that you were able to lay aside for yourself. Not much. At the end of the exit interview, they, the manager looks at you and says, and of course, you'll be able to participate in our employee reward program. And you go, what employee reward program? And they say, nobody ever told you? No. Well, every paycheck for the last 30 years, um, well, we set up an account from you from the first day you started. And we put money into that account. It's not like deferred comp where we took some of your money. No, it was all our money. And we put it into an account for you. We took some risks, and we got an incredible rate of return over the last 30 years. Found a way to make it tax-free to you. And, uh, well, the full balance is now yours. And he turns a little piece of paper around on the desktop, and you see your name. Employee Reward Program. And that figure is a strong seven figures. You go from disgruntled to a multimillionaire. How would you feel at the end of that exit interview? <laughs> Your whole future changed and you never expected it. In a way, these slaves were getting good news. You're laboring for nothing now. But God is the one you labor for, and he will reward you with a massive employee reward program. Amen. There you go. It'll last and run you forever. That's true for all of us. You may have been in and out of jobs. You may have been going through a tremendous amount of difficulty. Whatever it is, and here's the good thing. Your company doesn't set the, the rate on this. God does. I want to remind you, however, there's also an employee correction program. Um, I got to teach it because it's right in the text. It's verse 25. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. What he's saying is, listen, this is your opportunity as employees to live for the Lord, live with excellence, live for his honor and his glory no matter what. But if you don't, God's going to chasten you, and he's going to bring some stuff into your life to make you understand, no, you've got to live for him, you've got to work for him. So there's that chastening hand there too. I'd like to focus on the reward part myself. Wow. Well, there it is. Here's the last, and it's verse 1 of chapter 4. This is where the whole thought goes. The chapter break shouldn't be there. It's not inspired. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is to business owners. This is to entrepreneurs. This is to investors who hold their investments in companies stockholders. It's to upper level, sea uh, level type people who, who work in, in authority over their people and decide about the working conditions and the pay conditions of their people. He's saying to these Christian business owners, Christian investors, Christian masters, you have a role too. You make this environment for your believing employees just and fair. Why? Because you actually have a master in heaven too. You think you own your business, small business owner? No, you don't. God owns it. God gave it to you. God gave you the, the, the economic basis to get into it. God gave you your position in the market. God's given you everything. God owns it. 
You work for him. That ought to come as a relief to a small business owner, actually, because all your problems are God's too. I'm telling you, you got to make your numbers. It's God's problem. He's over all these things. You're an entrepreneur. You think that business idea was your own and that you're just everything. You're it. You get to make all these life and death decisions, dump people at a whim, reorganize and restructure, put people out on the street, whatever. Think again. You report to a different master if you're a believer. You run a company. You're at the decision level. Oh, you better remember to make it fair. Everybody's got a boss. So let me ask you, Quietly, don't have to answer out loud. Are you unhappy with your current job? Well, I wouldn't stop you from looking for another one. But did you know that you can get a new job without ever leaving your current one? You know where I'm going. How? By changing how you look at things. By looking for the value that may come if you view work itself as a privilege blessed and honored by God. If you understand that your work is not just labor, it's a witness. That you are called to do things for excellence, with excellence, because of who you really work for, and that can give you value and motivation no matter what. And remembering when your compensation really is going to arrive. And if you're running a business, remembering how you should reward others. So at the beginning, I quoted Laura Renee, who talked about the fact that during the COVID shuffle, a lot of people were amazed at how much they'd been working. And when she said, your desk should never become an altar. I think that's true in one sense. If, if your work is an altar in which you're taking more and more stuff in your life that you ought to pay attention to and sacrificing it, family, time, health, ethics, and putting it on that altar so you can build a bigger altar to you and your success, your death shouldn't be an altar. But something could happen if you turned that desk around, couldn't it? And it faced the Lord. And that desk became an altar upon which you placed your great thankfulness for the privilege of being there, of work itself, where you recommitted to be a witness in that environment to customers, clients, superiors, where you placed your best on that desk at the end of every day for him, where you ended every day with a prayer of, Lord, I know I really work for you today. I hope this pleases you, what I'm leaving here for you. I know when I'll be rewarded. And if you've got the big desk and you're responsible for others, as a Christian leader, can you at the end of your day place upon that desk facing the Lord integrity about how you treated your people. That could change everything, couldn't it? Could change everything. Tim Keller wrote, and I close with this, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, quote, your daily work is ultimately an act of worship to the God who called and equipped you to do it no matter what kind of work it is. In our work, we're quite literally acknowledging a gift from God and giving it back to Him as an offering.